Welcome back to our special mini-series on the opioid epidemic, brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, Behavioral Health Specialist at the IFF. In this episode, we'll hear from two members using innovative approaches to fight the opioid epidemic in their communities. First, we have Lieutenant Brian Nee from Boston Fire Department and a member of Local 718. Brian is part of an extraordinary program called Knock and Talk, which we'll learn about today. We also have perspective on the Knock and Talk program from Chris Goggin, also from Local 718. Then we'll turn to the West Coast to talk with Rob Weeks, president of IFF Local 18 in Vancouver, British Columbia. President Weeks will talk about using data and GIS mapping as a tool to combat the opioid epidemic. And we also have our own Thomas Breyer, the director of fire and EMS operations at the IFF. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get started. Brian, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I'm a lieutenant in the Boston Fire Department. I've been with the fire department for 20, 21 years, but my career started a little different than most. I worked for their employee assistance program before I became a firefighter. As a youth, I had some trouble with substance abuse issues. And we were fortunate enough to have a EAP program that helped out family members. So in 1998, I got into recovery and there was a guy who worked for the EAP, Lieutenant Oster guy, who always told me to go back to school and further my education. So I did that. And then in 2001, I was hired to work at the EAP program. But my dad was a firefighter for 33 years and I always wanted to be a firefighter. So in 2006, I was fortunate to get hired by the Boston Fire Department as a firefighter, currently assigned to Engine 18 in the Dorchester section of Boston. Great. Sounds like a long family history with, with fire service. Um, yes. You've, you've been around the fire department in Boston for a long time. What was happening in, in Boston before the Knock and Talk program was started? You know, Give us a sense of the, the problems with opioids that the city was facing. First of all, Boston Fire is different from Boston EMS. Boston Fire started carrying Nokian in 2014. And we were noticing that a large number of our calls were to homes, and we were going to the same calls multiple times. So our union president, the administration, all decided maybe we could try some program so we can go to these houses and offer assistance. But the debts from the opiates was rising each year. What stakeholders were involved in getting the Knock and Talk program up and running and making sure that it continues to run smoothly? The biggest asset was Mayor of the City of Boston, Mayor Walsh. He is in recovery himself, so this was one of his first things he wanted to happen. The Fire Commissioner from Boston and Local 718, they were all behind it. Jay Colbert, our third district vice president, professional firefighters of mass, Rich McKinnon. Local 718 President Bobby Petiti all support it these days. The two, two people who keep this going every day are Lieutenant Pat Hayes and Eamon Miller. They're always looking for new ways to advance this program and always making sure we have everything we need when we do go to the homes. So I just wanted to say thank you to them. Like I said, we did not carry knock-in until 2014, and we were going to the same homes over and over, and you could just see 
the parents' faces like they did not know what to do. So we had some discussions with the mayor, the union president, and um, the fire commissioner, and they decided to come up with the program Knock and Talk. Um, there has been other programs like this around the country, but most of them were police-centered. Um, so we decided to go forward with the Knock and Talk program in 2016. It took a few years to get there. The right players were involved to make change happen. Uh, and then what happened next? You know, what is the Knock and Talk program? Knock and Talk's a very unique program. So when we started carrying Knock-In, we would call them as 321N in the NIFRS report. So every day, someone from the EAP office, uh, Lieutenant Pat Hayes, who runs that, would go through the reports and they would see how many 321Ns happened at a home the night before. And then he would call a member of the team and we'd have two firefighters and one Boston Public Health specialist go out to the home. Um, we'd map out where we're going to go for that day, and we drive around the city and go to the homes. So a big part of what makes this program possible is the coding of calls using code 321N, and then having someone the next day look and see how many times that code appeared so that the team knows which addresses to go visit, right? Yes. And as of right now, we only go the 321Ns that happened in a home. And in Boston, that's where most of the deaths were happening in homes because people on the street, a lot of them have knock-in. One of their friends have knock-in, so they're able to knock-in each other. They're finding people dying at the home more often than outside. That makes sense. There's a team of eight firefighters who are all in some sort of recovery who are a part of the knock-and-talk program. Um, and when the team receives a list of Narcan codes that were entered from the day before in a home, what happens next? We try to go out as soon as possible because, I mean, it's life or death for this person if they don't get treatment right away. And if someone overdoses, the chance of overdosing again is really large after they overdose before. So we try to get out there as soon as possible, usually within 24 hours. So there's two firefighters and a lady from Boston Public Health Commission. I just want to give them a shout out. We have Stephanie and Amy, who are rock stars, who've been great for us. Um, so we'll go to the home. We'll knock on the door. Hopefully, hopefully they're home. We try to go at different times, different days, just to try to make sure they answer the door. We'll go at least three times before we stop going. And if we can't get in there, we'll, we'll call them on the phone. But usually we'll get in. And a lot of times it's just a, a parent there or a sibling. The person who overdosed might not be there. Hopefully they're already in treatment. A lot of times they're not. So our first thing will be is offer services to the family members, whether it's going to Al-Anon, Learn to Cope. Learn to Cope is an organization that was started in Massachusetts for parents dealing with their kids' substance abuse problems. So we'll give them referrals there and also just talk to them and let them know, maybe share our story a little with them. And just let them know there's someone there who cares about them and try to reduce that stigma a little bit. And we'll also train them in knock-in. So they'll have on hand if their son or daughter overdoses, brother or sister overdoses again. And if the person's there who did the survivor who did overdose, we will sit down and talk with them and try to get them in some type of treatment. Treatment looks a lot of different ways these days. So whether it's getting them into a residential program, getting them on harm reduction, um, or just talking to them, setting them up with a counselor. A lot of times they're not ready to go right at that moment. But if they are, we make sure we have resources available. We'll always make sure there's a treatment center that has beds 
So that's probably the biggest thing in the state of Mass is not having enough beds for these people who are suffering with opiate addiction. So we're fortunate enough to team up with different organizations that hold a few beds for us when they know we're going out. So we'll make sure there's beds available. And if that person wants to go, we'll drive them right there. That's why we have at least two firefighters all the time, just for safety issues, making sure keeping each other safe. Um, we'll drive them to treatment right there. But a lot of times it's the phone call is two or three weeks later, that person will call. I'm like, hey, I remember you came by my house. I'm ready to get some help now. And we'll train the parents in knock and also train them that way when they are out using, they will have knock Chris Goggin is another member of Local 718 and part of the Knock and Talk program. Chris, tell us about your role in the program. When you're addicted, it doesn't just affect yourself. It affects those around you. And one of the biggest things I get out of doing this program is when you get to speak to the parents, because no one ever asked the parents, how are you doing? You know, people forget that it's not just the person. It also affects the siblings, the parents. And a lot of times no one's ever asked them. And you just you do your best to help the family and the person that needs help. And you helping the person brings peace into the home. Most parents, especially husbands, it seems, don't know how to ask for help. It's just something that people bottle up and hold inside. And they don't share. And most people don't know there's other programs out there for parents, for the addict themselves. And we have an amazing opportunity to share with them all this information that's out there and try to guide them and, and, and do follow-up calls. And, you know, we give out our phone numbers and it just, um, it, it's, it's a service that's needed. That's amazing, Chris. Brian, what do you think are the factors that have contributed most to the success of this program? I've heard a bunch of different things um, that I might pull out, but, but I'm interested in what you think. I think just showing up at someone's door after their son or daughter overdose, just like, wow, people care. And that's why I'm so fortunate to work for the Boston Fire Department. And we have a great commission, a great union president and great mayor who this is very important to them. So just showing up there, like people are shocked when you tell them who you are. Sometimes it takes a little while for them to open a door because they might think you're a cop or like they're just worried. And when the Boston Fire Department is here to help us after they were here last night and offer assistance. I think that's the biggest success. And just building that trust. Like I said, it might take two or three weeks for that person to call us back, but just going in there initially, building that trust and showing that we care, care for them. Chris. Just having the opportunity to, to be able to, you know, give back. Um, I think a big part of why it works. And, and it's not a necessity that you need to be sober, but most of the guys on our team are in recovery. Um so you're coming from a place of empathy and um, each person that's on the team, you know, brings their own gifts. And, you know, for some reason, mine has been where my heart lies is, has been with, the, you know, the, you know, dealing with parents and, and husbands or wives or, or the other, not so much just the person affected the other person too. And it's just something I think is, um, overlook sometimes. Right. Right. So what about some of the biggest challenges the program has faced? I know when you've had a program up and running for a few years and it's running pretty smoothly, uh, sometimes we gloss over the 
growing pains or difficulties in the beginning. What were some of those? Traffic, traffic, traffic. Um, at Boston, it's awful. So maybe we're going to five houses that could take us five hours. And people say, well, why don't you just go to one area of the city on one day and the other? Like I said, they might not be alive in two or three days. So we tried to go the next day to offer assistance, but getting around the city is probably the biggest difficulty. And having people answer the door, I think 46% of the time we had people answer. So that's still 50% we're missing. We will continue to go back three or four times. Um, So traffic and people answering the door. So logistically, how does this work? You know, you're saying you, you go back up to three times, but I know there might be a lot of people who are overdosing in their homes. How is it managed? You know, how many different visits happen in a day or a week or a month? Give us a sense of, you know, how many people this program is reaching out to. I think in 2019, we went to 500 different residents. And a quick point about the Narcan part of it, since we started carrying Narcan in 2014, we saved over 3,500 lives. Um, not saying they would have died if we didn't show up, but EMS in Boston is a very busy, busy um, business. So firefighters usually will get there two or three minutes before them. And we did not have Narcan before. And having the Narcan, we administrated it 3,500 times. So I consider that saving 3,500 lives. The numbers of the Narcan talk, I think 2019 were 500 addresses we went to. What was it like before Boston Fire started carrying Narcan? You said you fire would often get there two to three minutes before EMS. Uh, that sounds like a, a terrible situation to be in, to be there, to have citizens looking to you for assistance and for firefighters not to have the tools they need. It was sort of a helpless failing. Um, we would just give them some oxygen and do what we could to EMS, got there. But we started noticing that bystanders would have knock-in and we weren't allowed to carry it. That gets into a whole nother political issue that I don't want to address, but with prior administrations, and we we're fortunate once Mayor Walsh was elected and working with labor and management together, we were able to get knocking started administrating it right away. So let's go back uh, specifically to Knock and Talk. How is the Knock and Talk program funded? Now it's funded through a SAMHSA grant. But before that, it was funded through the city of Boston. Um, like I said, the commissioner, the mayor, and the union president felt so strongly about this that they put money aside each year in the budget. And Lieutenant Pat Hayes, who is in charge of the EAP, but also was in charge of the Knock and Talk program, filed for a SAMHSA grant, I think it was um, two years ago, and we were rewarded it. We have a great grant writer in the Boston Fire Department, um, Melissa Knight. I love giving her a shout out because she's done great things for the Boston Fire Department. So we were rewarded this grant for four years and we were able to hire a gentleman named Eamon Miller. And that's his sole job is to concentrate on the knock and talk and come up with other advanced ways that we can help out with the opiate problem in the city of Boston. So initially this program was funded by the city of Boston. And then because the program was able to show success, uh, SAMHSA, or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration of the federal government, uh, awarded a grant for this program. That's really amazing. Yes. I mean, I was shocked when we did get the grant and just, we've been able to do so much more since we got that grant, um, especially during a time like this. 
and just with technology and coming up with websites and dashboards, how to keep track of where most overdoses are happening, who's getting help, who's not getting help. Just from this grant, we've been able to expand that program so much. With programs like this that are grant funded, it's really important to be able to show the impact to justify that the program is working and should continue. Uh, So tell us more about the data. What kind of results uh, has the program shown? Um, Like I said, in 2019, we 500 visits, 46% of the time someone was home. If someone answers that door, 84% of the time they're willing to engage with us. And 92% of them were trained in Narcan and received Narcan kits. 76% of these people had access to care, referral information, and family fo- support sessions. A fortunate one, the girl Stephanie on our team is bilingual. So a lot of the areas in Boston we go to, people don't speak English. So having her there, and we also have the literature that we hand out in seven different languages. Um, We're trying to expand our team. We have eight people who are working there now. We just had a training last year and we trained 10 more firefighters to become recovery coaches. Just developing the poor data collection and analysis technology, that's helped so much. Just able to show where these overdoses are happening, how many houses we're going to, who are we missing? And I think that will definitely help with the grant. So, Brian, how has this Knock and Talk program impacted the citizens of Boston and the members of Local 718? I definitely think the number of runs we are going on to overdoses in homes went down. I'm hoping that's part because of our program and also overdose deaths in Boston have gone down. I'm a little worried that because of this pandemic, what's going to happen after. But as of right now, our numbers in 2020 are going down. So I'm hoping that the Knock and Talk program was one small part of that. And I know with our firefighters, it can be frustrating if you're going to the same home over and over. And then if you're missing another call where you feel like you could be more important, whether it's a building fire, I know a lot of guys can get that compassion fatigue. But surprisingly, some of the houses we are going to are uh, brothers and sisters, family members, whether it's their aunt, uncle, brother, sister, cousins, which I was found shocking at first, but then I realized that this opiate epidemic does not discriminate and anyone's eligible for it. So so you started to allude to the emotional toll of this work. You know, it's it's heavy emotional work. What kind of impacts have you seen uh, in yourself or in other members of the Knock and Talk team? The ones who are in recovery Most of them still participate in recovery programs where they will get the help they need. And part of the recovery program is 12-step program. And the 12th step is helping others. So I know for myself, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to do that in my job is also help other people and try to get them into recovery like myself. But it can weigh on you if you're not taking care of yourself. And that's why we always try to practice self-care with each other and not sending the same people out Every day, we try to separate it where you'll go out once or twice a month. And what haven't I asked you about uh, with the Knock and Talk program that you'd like to share or you think is important for our listeners to know? Um, Well, just like I was saying, since we got the grant, we're trying to expand expand it through this COVID 
crisis. We have offered our assistance of driving people to treatment. They have a place in the city of Boston where people can go and ask help getting into treatment. And they were having a hard time getting people to drive these vans to get people to go to treatment. So a few of us from the Knock and Talk program volunteered to do that. Also, a lot of the overdoses in Boston happen in businesses, their bathrooms, whether it's Panera, Panera Bread, Starbucks. So we're hoping to expand and train them in knock-in so they have it available. If someone does overdose in their bathroom, they'll be able to administer knock-in. Like I said before, every second counts. Um, and just these days, we're not able to go in, in the house and do in-person visits. So we'll drop something off in the mailbox and hopefully they'll call us back. But usually we'll have a phone number. We'll just try to call them and just let them know we're there for them. And when this is all over, we'll be back doing the home visits. Great. Thank you. Our next guest is Rob Weeks, president of IFF Local 18 in Vancouver, British Columbia. President Weeks will share how they use data to improve response in the areas hit hardest by the opioid crisis. We will also hear from Thomas Breyer, IFF director of fire and EMS operations. President Weeks, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. To get started, could you tell us more about yourself, your local, and the Vancouver Fire Department? Sure. Um, as you introduced me, I'm the president of my local, Local 18 in Vancouver, Canada. I'm also the executive vice president of our provincial association and the district field service rep for the 6th district. Uh, my local, Local 18, uh, represents the city of Vancouver. We've been a fire department since 1886. And we're a charter local of the IFF, and thus have been a member of the IFF since 1918. We service a population of 700,000, and I represent 800 full-time firefighters. So what was the situation like with opioids in Vancouver before the local and the department realized that something needed to be done differently? Okay, first I want to just frame for you an area of our city called the downtown east side. Uh, it is an area that's six square blocks, 18,000 people reside in that six square blocks, and roughly 50% of those residents are drug users. So it is a, a, a really concentrated area of drug use, um, and we that area is serviced by a fire hall. We call it fire station number two, and it, at, in 2016, it had two trucks. And in 2016, we really started to notice our overdose calls and our call volume increased dramatically. So prior to the opioid crisis hitting, uh, that fire station with its two trucks responded to roughly 700 calls a month and approximately 85 overdoses. Uh, as 2016 progressed, um, particularly, particularly by the end of 2016, we had doubled our call volume from 700 to almost 1400 and our overdoses had dramatically increased from that number of 85 on average to almost 500. So we're talking about a dramatic spike in what we were seeing boots on the ground. That does sound like an incredible increase uh, that would have, you know, obviously with an increase in call volume, there's uh, increased stress on the members who are responding to all of these calls. Uh, and I'm assuming also decreased response times when volume increases that much. Yeah, you touch on some some really good points, and and 
I think what I'll what I'll do is just frame what we did initially, and I'd I'd love to get into, and I hope we do, get into you know how we use call volume and response times to to make arguments for more staffing. But the first thing we did is um, use our branding, which uh, we've done extensively prior to the this spike. Um, use our branding platform to really let the public know what was going on, and it was as simple at first as putting a picture on social media of a calendar with the call volume written per month. Um, and you could see quite dramatically uh, month to month that call volume increasing. And we put some you know, pointed commentary on what was going on. And that uh, gained considerable traction on the social media platform. And from that, we pivoted to a lot of traction of conventional media. And we ended up doing... Uh, a significant series of radio and television interviews about what was going on in this downtown east side and particularly our fire station two that was the the focus of this crisis um from that media attention uh, with our branding we were able to secure uh, an extra truck for that downtown east side fire hall so in 2017 uh, City Council passed a half percent property tax increase specifically to add a resource to that fire station to help our members cope with the increased call volume and, in addition, of course, protect the citizens that that fire station serves by being readily available and, and closer to the proximity of, of where a call would take place in that downtown east side. And that was a large success for our local. That was the first time we'd seen growth in our department uh, since the sixties. Wow. That's incredible. Um, you're making it sound really easy that there is a problem. You use traditional media and social media to communicate about the problem. Uh, and then something was done to address the problem. You know, could you tell us a little more about the details of, you know, what else was required from the local, uh, whether it's advocacy or communication to really get this done? Yeah, I think we've always been really involved in the IFF and in particular paid a lot of attention to the material put out by the IFF. And the IFF's done a really good job of being front and center for advocating for you as the fire service to be out there in the public, to control your brand, to build your audience. Uh, in addition to that, it, it's, you know, we, as we all know, the IFF has been a leader in being engaged with decision makers and particularly the political arena. So we've, we've taken that to heart always. And for, a considerable amount of time, long before this crisis, we've invested heavily uh, in resources and training so that our members can be effective advocates in the political arena and in, in the arena where decision makers make decisions about our, our staffing and for our branding. So, you know, I said it, I've said it lots. The last time, you know, the, the worst time to get involved in, in branding yourself is when you need to have a, a strong following and a strong brand. So, we had the we we had the attention of the public prior to this overdose, and we were able to pivot um, that audience to to the, our message real easily. So it wasn't it wasn't as easy as it sounds because so much work went in prior to us uh, going to the public uh, with our need. That makes sense. Uh, so you already had the credibility to to communicate the messages that you needed to communicate uh, when you needed something done. Um, what were those key messages or key data points that you found most effective? Well, initially, it was as simple as just call volume. 
and and overdoses and overdose de- overdose deaths. That was that was the the our initial response to this crisis. That was really the data we used to get more resources. Now, I'll get into uh, uh, what we did more recently, where we have now just recently got another truck, a fourth truck in that fire station that's going live next month, and we used additional data points there to make to make uh, our advocacy stronger uh, for that downtown Eastside fire hall. So from when uh, Local 18 started trying to address this problem in 2016 through present day, through next month, you will have doubled the number of trucks operating out of Fire Hall 2. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's significant. And that's significant for the members that work in that fire station um, that are, that are uh, feeling the effects, especially the, the mental trauma of that kind of call volume and the associated call types, you know, overdoses. You know, these are tough calls. A lot of our members uh, report, uh, and I've I've done it too. I work on I work in our fire halls. I've seen it where we go to the same overdose patient uh, twice in the same tour of duty, even twice in the same shift. So that comes uh, comes with that as a bit of compassion fatigue, and so that doubling of the resources in that fire station has been significant for our members, and of course that's significant to the public we serve. We're able to respond much quicker get there quicker so that we can uh, make an effective intervention when needed uh, and a life-saving intervention in particular when it comes to overdoses and, and thus save members of the public. But really, you know, you talked about what data we used initially and I talked about call volume and overdoses and overdose deaths, but our success there framed for us that we weren't as strong on data as we needed to be because those, you know, that data, although powerful, uh, wasn't the depth of data we think we needed it to be an advocate going forward. So it really caused us to rethink how we handle data. And and our, really our goal was to become uh, a leader as far as our own data and analytics uh, in our in our fire service. And so we created a data analytics committee following what happened in 2016 and 2017. Uh, that committee is, uh, you know, has some, we, we're lucky, like most of us, have some members with some expertise and and some interest. And we, we've invested a lot in training to make sure those members uh, were, um, were, were strong when it came to data analytics. And we really made sure that we owned our data. And one of the first things we did is, is, is get a GIS done. Uh, the IFF has a great GIS department. In 2017, we did the GIS with our city and we were able to show that 40 percent of our downtown which is our most concentrated population and where that downtown east side area is part of that 40 percent of the high rises we couldn't assemble an effective response force and that was considering every single fire truck being at the station ready to go and of course with a call volume that i'm talking about um, in the downtown east side that, that wasn't the case. And with good data, we were able to show that by using GPS and AVL. Uh, we were able to show that our trucks were on the road a considerable amount of that time. So at a, with 40% of our high rises, not able to, um, we're not able to mount an effective response force with all trucks in the barn. It was considerably worse um, when we looked at it from what was going on in reality with our trucks on the road. And that really helped us start the conversation about the need for growth in our fire service. Um, you know, we were also able to show that we were having trucks respond 
you know, upwards of 20% of the time from out of zone, meaning other areas in our city were having to respond to this downtown east side crisis and come in and, 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 and help that, that fire hall. And of course, what that means is it's a longer response time because they're, they're starting from a, a point that's farther away. So that affects citizen safety. And of course, now they're not in the district they're supposed to be in. So if there's now a, a fire or a medical emergency in the community that fire station normally has a truck in, it's a much longer response for those citizens. So it really allowed us to start being much better advocates using powerful data to, to make arguments for growth. And from that, uh, we were able to, working with the department, and I must say, our department's been a really good partner with this. Our fire chief, Fire Chief Daryl Reed, uh, is strong on data analytics and has been very supportive of, of making sure we have the data uh, in order to, to make these arguments. And, and, and he does a good job himself with his own team uh, compiling this data. And together, uh, we were able to, with our GIS, and the city um, started their own uh, consultant report. Uh, together, both of those uh, analysis showed that we were we were short-staffed considerably. And together, we were able to argue for an increase to our fire service of 122 firefighters over five years. We're, we're in the middle of that now. Um, and that's the first growth we'd seen in our fire service since the 60s. So it's a real success story. And, and bringing it back to the downtown east side, as you stated, um, we've now doubled the, the trucks out of that station from two to four. And that, that's had a significant effect. And it's a real success story. It's incredibly strong work out of your, your local um, to think about increasing the service by 122 members over five years. It's just outstanding. To learn more about the GIS services offered by the IAFF, let's turn to Director of Fire and EMS Operations, Thomas Breyer. Thomas, we hear this term GIS all the time. What is GIS and how does the IAFF use it to assist our local affiliates? GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems, and it takes data from a variety of sources, some that we input and some that we're able to collect from open source data points, and then create overlapping layers to be able to assess a variety of uh, pieces of information that are important to planning for fire and emergency medical services response, and as well as a variety of special task groups like hazmat teams or technical rescue teams. What can you tell us about how the IFF assisted Vancouver with their efforts? Working with Vancouver was very unique. They were a, an incredibly large uh, local. They were very eager to participate and utilize the resources that the IFF had, especially these very upper level technical resources that we had. Um, and they uh, really pushed the envelope and, and kind of put us to task and, and push us to achieve a higher level of, of uh, service that we typically provide. And we did a variety of things for them. Uh, we, we combed the internet to find uh, open source data so that we could plot out some of their higher risk, higher hazard building structures. And then again, overlaying it with their response capabilities showed where they were not meeting demand or where they were not able to meet demand rather within the uh, limits established by uh, NFPA 1710. We also, for them, did a lot of assessment about how some of their special teams are able to respond, especially their hazardous material teams, uh, to help better locate those resources and strengthen their, uh, their staffing. 
President Weeks, what were the biggest challenges that you faced throughout these efforts? I don't know if I'd say this is the biggest challenge, but I think it, it is a significant challenge that we're all going to face. One, um, in my experience, in, in my in my advocacy in provincial and as a district field service rep, there is there is some departments that are leery to share data with their partner unions, and and so I think that is a significant challenge. Like I said, luckily we didn't face that challenge, although prior to this chief, we certainly did. Um, and the other challenge for all of us is is making sure our own members understand, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, because that's really important because our members are the, you know, the, the first place where good data can get collected. You know, you're, 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 they're, they're the ones that, that use their mobile data terminals. They're the ones that put in their, um, their reports. And for us, it's a, you know, we all have a fire data management software program. So those reports have to be good. The data has to be good. Um, we have to make sure our members understand the why, why it's important, um, because you know data is the new new arena where we're going to have to make the arguments for our fire service and making sure that our department, you know, our fire chiefs understand the importance and are willing to share that data with you. I think that's that's a significant obstacle for some and a place where we need to make sure we we uh, um, convince them of the, the need for that and making sure our own members do what they can do to make sure we're getting good data to analyze. And moving forward, I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the things we're looking at. And, and, and again, we're, we're going around to our members to explain the why is making sure that to, we uh, collect data for when we actually are on scene with a patient. Um, for example, we may be meeting NFPA standards and a lot of our fire services are like this to getting to the front door, to getting to the address of, uh, of in a building. But we all know that that could be double or triple the amount of time till we get to the patient. And that's where a meaningful intervention can happen. It's not when we pull up to the address. It's actually when we're, we're bedside with that patient and we can make an intervention. Or if it's a fire, when it's the time we actually make that first intervention, like water on fire. So we're really pushing moving forward that we make sure we get that data um, it's going to be an important piece of uh, information as we advocate for further growth and understand our industry as we move forward, especially in this you know, time we're in now with COVID and budget crisis and economic conditions that may not be positive. We really need to be leaders of our data and be able to articulate as strongly as possible the need for our service and why it's important. I absolutely agree. We've got to be able to collect data and continue to communicate our value, especially in these more difficult times. Um, so you went into this a little bit, but what do you see is is coming next? What's still needed in this part of town? Well, we, uh, given the density of where this downtown east side is, and, and for Vancouver, it's it's a significant amount of high rises. Um, it. it what we need to be focused, what we need to focus on is ensuring that we can mount an effective response force for what is a high hazard area. And so I think for all of us, um, and the IFF's done a really good job of talking about NFPA 1710, and that's a foundational document for all of us. And, and what's been monumental for us is that shift where the NFPA 1710 has understood that, um, not everything is a 2,000 square foot single family home with no basement, which is, you know, as we all know, that low hazard structure that most of our cities now uh, with densification, um, high rises, multifamily dwellings, 
most of our cities are in that medium to high hazard area. And with that, there needs to be a, a more robust response. So we need to understand that and we need to make sure that we're advocating for, for the public that live in those those types of structures and for our firefighters that are responding. So I think we need to focus on medium and high hazard and that's an area we're focused on to make sure we can tell that story about making sure that the public that lives in those structures are, are actually getting a, a, an effective response force and making sure because of these complex dwellings, like I said before, making sure we're responding in a timely fashion. So again, it's not just getting to the front door, it's, it's getting to you, the patient or getting to the to the seat of the fire. So those are really important points for us moving forward. In addition, with a high call volume, and I, I touched on it earlier, making sure that we understand how often our fire trucks are responding out of zone so that we understand the impact on, on fire halls from associated neighborhoods, and we understand that impact. I think that's where we're focused on moving forward, and, and, and I think it'll tell a really telling story. And with all that, of course, don't ever lose sight on the, the the impact to your own members. And and we certainly haven't. And we've really keep kept our members in the, the forefront of our mind. Because as, as we talked about earlier, responding to a high call volume, especially one when it comes to addiction and death associated with addiction, that, that, that's traumatizing. And we're, we're understanding the impact of that mental trauma. We're, we're, beating back that stigma associated with that trauma. And we're really focused on that to ensure that our members you know, can stay safe and really finish this career um, intact. So President Weeks, we've touched a little bit on how these high call volume areas and going on multiple opioid runs in the same neighborhoods, often on the same people, really affects the membership. How are you keeping track of those exposures for the membership or how are they doing it for themselves? Yeah, that's um, a really good question. And it's something we're really concerned about. And I'm happy to say so is our department and our leaders in our department, our fire chiefs. So we, we have a, a partner in this. Uh, we are uh, endeavoring to make sure that our members are using N4s, which is a, which is a new tool that the IFF has really supported and endorsed. And one of the most important parts of that N4s is a, a tracking system for exposures. And as we all know, exposures go far beyond, uh, you know, smoke and fire. Um, there is significant exposure when it comes to trauma, uh, mental health trauma. And we want to make sure we capture that picture accurately. And N4s is a great tool that allows members uh, confidentially to to track their own exposures in real time uh, with uh, associated CAD data to the call they just went on. And that's that's where we're moving to next to make sure that we, we use N4s to its fullest capability to make sure we have a great tracking system to understand the amount of trauma our members are exposed to and so that we can appropriately deal with it. Absolutely. What I'm hearing is that despite these big wins of adding uh, apparatus and increased staffing, the work is never done. Uh, there's always more that we can be doing to better serve the public and better serve our members, especially in areas like this where the call volume is so, so large. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to contextualize that a bit, as much as there is a success that we gained 122 firefighters over five years or look to gain 122 firefighters over five years, 
our staffing at the end of this five-year plan puts us back to where we were in 1987 in Vancouver. And Vancouver, much like many busy metropolitan cities, has, has grown significantly in the last four decades. So, you know, it, it is a great success, but we're mindful that we've got a long way to go. And we need to keep telling our stories to decision makers so they understand effectively the impact to decisions in the fire service and particularly the, the prudent investment uh, that we are as an industry, how important it is to invest in us. What advice would you give to other affiliate leaders who are embarking on a similar project uh, in their own hometowns? Well, certainly, and I'll say this again, and I said it before, you know, the, the worst time to start a public branding campaign or a political action investment is when you need it. So start now. Start building your brand. The IFF puts on some great courses. They have great material on how to build your brand effectively. Um, there's really good information about how to be involved in the political arena and in the arena where decision makers make decisions about your service. Get involved now before it's a crisis, before you need it. And furthermore, um, don't discount data and the importance of data and good analytics. Um, again, we created that committee in 2017, and that's, that's, that's been very promising for us, and it, we, it will be promising as we move forward. So find the, the leaders in your local that, that, are, that understand this, if, if you don't, and, and make sure that you empower them to start collecting this data and analyzing this data so you can start making the most effective arguments when it comes to your resource. That sounds great. It's a great model for uh, other affiliates across Canada and the U.S. to consider. You asked me a question earlier, and, I, and I'll reiterate a point uh, here, is, is really utilize the, the services the IFF provides. And you talked about it. The IFF has a great communications division. They have a great political action training academy. Their GIS division is robust, and there's fantastic data that can come out of that. The GIS recognizes low, medium, and high hazard areas of your city, which, which is incredibly a, an incredibly powerful tool when it comes to advocating to decision makers. Um, NFPA 1710, there's, IFF has great programs on helping you understand NFPA 1710 so you can uh, be the best advocate you can be uh, for your service. And you know what we just talked about, Enforce, this is going to be a really good tool and a really powerful tool to understand trauma in our service. So I, I really need to compliment the IFF for doing the great work it's doing and really providing the tools that are that are needed. These are critical tools, they're the right tools, and take advantage of it. All affiliates should be should be looking at these tools that the IF provides and ensuring that they're up to speed with them and take advantage of the training opportunities. Well, incredible strong work out of Vancouver under your, your leadership. Uh, we really appreciate you joining the podcast here today uh, and sharing your successes with us. Thank you. It's a real team effort. I'm, I'm really happy to be part of this team. And thank you for giving me some time on this platform. I hope it's helpful to some of our affiliates. I'm sure that it will be. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number uh 4 e S009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.